0: Welcome to our podcast from the ARK Insider, the Africa Focus podcast, offering some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co-presenter Tara O'Connor, the managing director of ARK, Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. We both live, breathe, and work African affairs and our podcast aims to stimulate ideas among those who share a fascination for this part of the world. Tara, welcome.
1: Hello, Karen. Very good to be chatting to you again from sunny France. Still locked down, but I've had my I've been Pfizer'd, as they say, but without the photo. Yeah. <laughs> yes, without the photo. The accompanying obligatory photo to post on social media. But I assure you, I have been I have been in vaccinated.
0: Well, you'll be able to move around a lot quicker than me, I suspect. I think having a South African um, stamp on the passport uh, is going to make it really difficult for many more months to come. We're still on the red list as far as uh, Britain's concerned. Now, Tara, I want to mention this because your former alma mater, um, the University of Cape Town, has been very much in the news because of a fire that um, ravaged through part of Table Mountain and actually um, took out some of the buildings at, uh, at uct um it appears to have been started uh, on the mountain possibly by a vagrant and it was fanned by those gusty winds that the city is famous for but among the casualties um, and mercifully no lives have been reportedly lost but was uh, one of the university libraries where many thousands of unique manuscripts held by the african studies departments have been completely destroyed Um, Some student residents have also uh, been badly affected by smoke damage. And it's been a story that's really... Kind of really resonated with people here, with many people homeless, living on the mountain, cooking on the mountain. These kinds of fires coupled with climate change really are not uncommon in the Western Cape, are they? No, that's true, Karen. And yes, you're right. The African
1: Studies Library is very famous, not just for the documents that it held, but also for its history as a bastion against apartheid thought control. In my student days there, it was one of the only places in South Africa that you could learn about the rest of Africa. And as you know, in normal times, Cape Town is my home for part of the year. And every year in recent years, there have been massive fires on that fab- famous tabletop landmark. And some of it's tourists dropping cigarettes. Um, and But most recently, there is this uh, increase in migrants. Uh, migrants mainly from neighbouring countries that have made uh, the mountain, their home, often as the low income districts around Cape Town are incredibly dangerous, especially for foreign Africans. So, you know, you you have got a, an increase in homeless uh, people living on the
0: mountain. Cape Town aside, there's been a lot going on since our last podcast, Tara. So let's take a brief look at the stories that have been making the headlines. <music> Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is
1: behind bars this morning, found guilty on all counts
2: in the murder of George Floyd. Former Ivorian President Laurent Bagbo has been given the all clear to leave Brussels after the International Criminal Court upheld his acquittal of crimes against humanity. The Southern African Development Community (SADC) members have agreed to send a technical mission to Mozambique to stop acts of terrorism perpetrated against innocent civilians in Cabo Delgado.
0: Hello and welcome. We start
1: with some breaking news. The army in Chad says President Idris Deby
0: has died from injuries sustained in fighting at the front line. Well, picking up on some of those stories, Tara, we heard their mention of Mozambique and the regional body SADC under pressure to support an intervention force following an escalation in violence in the north. SADC's agreed to send in a technical assessment team, but you'll remember it is a body that's notoriously reluctant to meddle in domestic affairs of other countries. But it will be meeting at the end of this month. At the end of last month, Mozambique experienced an audacious attack, you'll remember, by militants, some of whom align themselves with ISIS in the city of Palma. Now, it generated huge amounts of international news, partly because I think foreigners were caught up in the violence and partly because of the numerous foreign investors who have interests in Mozambique. Now, the underlying reasons for this insurgency are complex. But the US government has seen it fit to designate the militants, who rather confusingly describe themselves as al-Shabaab, although they've got no link at all to the Somali organisation of that name. They've been designated as a foreign terrorist organisation because of some links to ISIS. I think there's a real mixed reaction to that because on the one hand it may help with elevating media attention, but it also really rather risks oversimplifying what is a deep-seated conflict, doesn't it, Tara? Yes, it's a deep-seated problem going back many years and
1: compounded by poverty and unemployment and easy access to weapons in the, in the area. And the very north, and particularly Cabo Delgado province, where leaders going back to the fr- former Frelimo generals have used all elections, peace negotiations and other mechanisms to highlight the government way down south in Maputo that it's a neglected area. And while there's definitely an Islamist route to the violence, the risk that the, that the arrival of US Marines, Green Berets as advisors, is that it will act to draw Islamist jihad fighters exactly. to the area, which we, a risk that we've raised in previous podcasts, I recall. And indeed, Kenyan newspapers reported last week that actual al-Shabaab fighters were making their way down the coast from Somalia.
0: Yeah, and the links are established there, aren't they? Because, you know, there were reports, I think, a couple of years ago of Mozambique being a route through which uh, illegal ivory was uh, being traded and, and the proceeds being sent up to help fund al-Shabaab in Somalia. So definitely some links there. Now, Tara, some analysts predict that some companies will be considering more offshore investments to mitigate the risk of terrorism in Mozambique. So that obviously has a big impact on job creation um, among the local communities, whilst others presumably may decide to postpone their investments altogether in Mozambique. The real concern is the damage that this attack has
1: already done to the long-term prospects for investment in Mozambique and its impact on the economy as a whole. At least one oil major, ExxonMobil, Exxon has postponed its investment decision indefinitely. And the French oil giant Total, which had decided to invest, has for a second time suspended work on its gas project. And what is at stake for the whole region is something like $50 billion worth of investment over, over 25 years. And these delays and postponements and deferrals of investment will actually in turn delay the production of gas, the export of gas and the share of the revenue that the government's state-owned energy company uh, will
0: receive. Yeah, and there's growing regional concern about any any knock-on effects. We'll watch that closely because I know we have been mentioning Mozambique in a lot of our our podcasts. Um, Can we turn to the dramatic news of the death of one of Africa's longest-serving leaders? Uh, Chad's president, Idris Deby, uh, who was, you know, he did align himself, didn't he, in the fight against Islamic uh, Islamist extremism. Uh, he had a very dramatic end, uh, by all accounts, um, but completely in character. He was killed in battle, He died on the battlefield. You don't hear many presidents uh, dying in those circumstances. But it happened just days before he would have uh, embarked on a sixth term after presidential election. So his son's now taken over. Um, it's a military government with a promise of um, possible civilian rule. Well, a promise of civilian rule in eighteen months' time. I know some opposition figures are calling it a coup, but it's just interesting. You don't hear of that many leaders that are literally so hands-on.
1: Yes, I know. It's it's a sort of there's a sort of a historic, romantic kind of image to mm-hmm. this uh, yeah. um, leader dying on the battlefield. Um, and yet he was a leader who was effectively a dictator for um, uh, for more than 30 30 years. Uh, and um, and I mean it was his his the story of his coming to power was one of the first stories I ever wrote, uh, where you know, it was a picture of of Debbie leading an army um, of those Toyota technicals, you know, those converted, uh, converted Toyotas, armed pickup trucks that can carry portable weapons across a desert. And here was De- Debbie leading uh, an army of these technicals across the desert from Libya. And with, interestingly, the French forces that were stationed nearby standing by and allowing it to happen. And uh, Debbie chasing out the then president, Hussein Habri, out of the country. But not before Habré had loaded a Hercules C-130 aircraft with all that he could of the nation's wealth to head off into exile. But Debbie's death leaves a political and security vacuum in this nearly forgotten jihadist war in, that is going on across the Sahelian countries from, uh, from Libya to Mali. Debbie was actually central uh, ally for the West and largely for the French-led intervention in the region um, and he and his military under Debbie's r- leadership provided a very important check to the activities of, say, Boko Haram along Chad's shared border with Nigeria uh, and provided a, um, a suitable buffer uh compensating from for nigeria's really poor performance the Ni- nigerian army's poor performance along that border
0: it's a real reminder isn't it of those difficult deals that have to be struck uh, that, that western governments ally themselves with uh, people who in ordinary circumstances would be unpalatable because they're not democratic they're dictators debbie was there for 30 years and yet in the fight against um islamic extremism that effectively they are such an important partner
1: definitely an important partner and you know a problem for the west uh, in the uncertainty that now will follow
0: really interesting just to remind um listeners that of course you know chad is a part of the world we don't report on very often um inextricably linked with the the the, that time of huge humanitarian um disaster um in Darfur just across the border and you know almost a a proxy a proxy war in many respects between interests in in Khartoum And interest in in N'Djamena in in Chad. Not my favourite place in the world, I have to say. I'm talking about N'Djamena. I have some, like you, very sandy memories of um, that rather isolated part of the world. But interesting times. Um, Can we just one more more story, if we may, Tara? Um, Here in South Africa, the debate over vaccine safety has been prominent once again compared to the rollout in the UK and Europe we are way behind here because of the south african variant of the virus there've been sort of fewer options and the johnson and johnson vaccine which is being locally manufactured under license and is a key part of the program to vaccinate healthcare workers well now that program has suffered a setback because of news of blood clots that have come out of uh, the United States. So the regulators here have basically suspended it. Now, as we record this podcast, there is pressure for that suspension to be lifted as more evidence comes out of the United States and a number of other countries that the benefits uh, certainly outweigh the risks. But I have to say, it, it fills it fills me with dread because, you know, South Africa continues to be on the red list for countries like the UK. And if our vaccine programme is so, so far behind here, one has to wonder how long that's going to persist.
1: Yes. And, uh, and that is obviously, uh, you know, I mean, I think on the upside uh, for South Africa is both that the rate of infection is going down and that is actually even being reflected in the more Uh, in the the more honest statistics, which are the excess death rates, is showing a a dramatic fall as well. But yes, these shortages look set to increase too, uh, as India, with its enormous uptick in infection rates, looks to perhaps impose restrictions on exports. Um, And yet, at this time, we do still have to mark a historic first Uh, in the public health, in the history of public health, uh, which is that uh, in March last month, the COVAX programme managed to deliver millions of doses of vaccines simultaneously to Africa's poorest economies so that at least these countries had a chance to launch a vaccination programme.
0: But if ever there was an argument for a public health system, this has to be it, doesn't it? This has to be the moment where it shines
1: absolutely and this and all the experts um, are saying that this is just the first of many pandemics we now have to have this as a you know the global the global north has to work with the global south to make sure that there is greater equality in public health because otherwise we're not going to be able to contain future pandemics
0: absolutely tara always a pleasure You're listening to The Ark Insider, the africa Focus podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Our guest today is a renowned Ghanaian Scottish architect who's reached the upper echelons of her career and become a familiar name on the international stage. As well as working in the United States on leading academic programs on architecture, Leslie Loco established the Graduate School of Architecture, GSA, at the University of Johannesburg in 2015, the first such graduate school of its kind in Africa. She's also set up an institute to help shape African futures, as well as being an accomplished novelist. Leslie Loko, welcome to the Ark Insider.
2: Thank you. It's great to
0: be here. Thank you. So, Tara, who you know extremely well, is joining us from France. <laughs> Hello, Leslie. Hi, Tara.
1: Hello, Lizzie, and thank you very much for joining us. I know that you're hectically busy having moved back to Ghana recently and launching at the same time a new venture, which is uh, as if that's not enough on one's plate. No, it's it's been quite hectic. Someone
2: described it the other day as I'm um, giving birth and I have never given birth before, but um, it feels like having given birth to triplets. But
0: yeah. my eyes are watering.
1: By way of background, you grew up in Accra in Ghana and until the age of 17, born to a Ghanaian surgeon father and a Scottish mother. You then com- that's right, you then completed your education in a British boarding school where which is we've had many discussions about that in the past before going on to study Hebrew and Arabic at Oxford. Fast forward a little, and you eventually chose to study architecture and bagged a PhD to become one of the leading lights of this field internationally. Is that a correct summary?
2: I'm not sure I'd use the word leading light, but it's chronologically <laughs> correct. <Yes. laughs> I think Blasted light is more like it, but... <laughs> The obvious question then is why, why architecture? What was it that drew you to that, that discipline? It's a really interesting question. And I mean, I've had quite a lot of time to think about it. I think I was very drawn to the conceptual idea of a home and coming from a, a mixed culture and racial background. I think the question of where home was for me was always a, a, it was always a question. And I think mm-hmm. it, it took me quite a long time to settle on a discipline that would allow me to explore those ideas in both very pragmatic, but also in quite conceptual ways. And I, I the first instinct I had when I started studying architecture at the undergraduate level was, it's quite an odd one, I thought I've come home.
1: It's very critical now at this time. I mean, you've moved back to Ghana, going to be setting up an institute, which we will talk about in a moment. But I just thought... I'd love to have your ideas about uh, where this architecture, I mean, fits into uh, African cities. Uh, You know, the African city in particular is going to be so important over the next uh, 50 to 100 years, with Lagos and Cairo becoming super, super cities of the future. And I know you've talked about, um, you know, architecture's role in helping uh, planners and so on, get ahead of the curve. Would you like to expand a bit on that?
2: Sure. I mean, I think architecture as a discipline is a phenomenally, um, it's both responsive, but it's also propositional. And I, I think for me, that's one of the things that really draws me to it as a discipline, is that you don't only study it and understand its history and its precedents and so on, but you also project. It's, it's, a, it's an enormous act of hope. In some senses, it's always talking about something that's going to come. And, you know, Africa over the past, I'd say, 50 years particularly has been an incredibly dynamic, sometimes very volatile, often quite unstable, but but creatively unstable construct, if you like. I mean, I, I know that sounds like a dichotomy in terms. But this possibility to imagine new futures, to imagine new ways of living, to imagine new environmental relationships is very much part of, I think, what Africa is going through. It, you know, it, its progress has been speeded up, almost accelerated. And so for someone who's interested in the future, it's an amazing laboratory to, to be in because you're sort of making the future almost as you speak.
0: Can I ask a then, sort of a futuristic question then, because there's a lot of talk, and you'll know this from, from spending time in, in South Africa in particular, a lot of talk about the smart city idea, this idea that we, you know you have all this technology that helps to power cities. You've described sort of architecture like coming home. It's about being home. That's a very kind of human concept. And yet with that, there's this technology that gets kind of loaded into the idea of cities. Is there a tension there? Do you think there's a, there's a danger that cities almost become... Um, places if we do follow through this sort of smart city logic they're places where we're not people anymore we're we're data points where you know we're monitored we're tracked I mean as an architect where do you see that sort of smart city idea going
2: again a really good question and I'm going to answer it in a slightly anecdotal way about 15 or 20 years ago I had a student an African student studying in the UK who had done a project down Whitehall and what she'd done was map out all the areas in Whitehall where the security cameras could not see you. And she called it Safe City. And yes. it was quite an interesting drawing because it was about these tiny slivers of 1% and 2% where you, where you couldn't be um, surveyed. And this was before the rise of you know, TV programs like Big Brother and the, the whole sort of reality TV um, mm. you know, phenomena. And about 10 years ago, I happened to be talking to this student again, and we were talking about how reality TV has made the idea of surveillance entertainment for us. It's made us feel safe and comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And she was reflecting on this project, and she said one of the things that she loved about being back home in Uganda was that she felt that she wasn't being watched and monitored and data-pointed all the time, and that there was something about the humanness of being in in you know, Kampala that... She felt had been completely lost elsewhere. And in all this, you know, talk about technology and the smart city, I keep on asking myself, what do we mean by smart? You know, if, if we're at the point where we're surveyed 300 times a day, our irises are mapped, we, you know, Big Brother, whoever, can watch our every move. I mean, all of these conversations are coming up now. I ask myself, what's smart about that? African cities for all their challenges, for all their problems, for all their sort of infrastructural deficiencies, let's say, I do think they offer us some space to rethink this question of our relationship to technology. And that really excites me, particularly when I'm teaching because the students I'm teaching now have grown up with technology. They have a very different relationship to it. So that space for me has been really interesting over the past five, I don't know, five, six, seven years.
0: It's so interesting because, you know, there is a danger, I guess, that, that, you know, you mentioned Kampala and Uganda is one of the places that are now being targeted by the big tech firms, that in a sense that if people don't wake up to this questioning of smart, as you say, that, that, that African cities become almost a testing ground for this kind of technology because there isn't necessarily the pushback that you get in North America or Europe.
2: Absolutely, and, and, and also a kind of critical awareness you know, the, the, the sort of development paradigm is is very linear and very one-way. You know, this is how it's going to be when you will be developed. And our education systems often don't build in moments where we reflect both on the meaning of it, but also on its implications. And, and that's why, for me, you know, in, in the world's youngest continent, education is abs- it's the battleground of the future. And um, it's the one area that I think we cannot afford to take for granted.
1: And... And that sort of brings me on to an, uh, an, another question I mean the question of education and 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 your recent background and I know that you 've exhausted the subject uh, to Helen Gohn about why you left as the head of the architecture school uh, at City College in New York last year. Um, it was at the height of the black Lives matter, and i'd just like to know uh, in that context what was happening in your life at that point that made you I want to leave and now to take this changed course?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea of an independent, you know, whether public or private, whether philanthropic or not, I mean, those are kind of organisational issues that, that I need to figure out. But the idea of an independent school, a new kind of school, has been knocking around at the back of my head for the past, I don't know, decade. And in some ways, the setting up of the graduate school in Johannesburg was always thought of as a kind of pilot, but one of the reasons i left johannesburg was because i couldn't get the administrative support i needed in order to run the school and so i saw myself at the age of whatever it was 55 working 18 hours a day seven days a week 365 days a year and i realized actually i'll, I'll die on the job mm-hmm. so the move to new york was intended and never intended to go there for more than one term as de- uh, one term as dean which was about five years and to try and build that level of experience of of running an institution at that kind of management level, but also to make the kind of philanthropic connections that inevitably would be important moving back to Africa. But as soon as I landed, I realized actually the administrative infrastructure is if anything worse than it was in, in South Africa. So that was the first wake up call. But the second was, you know, after both COVID and the Black Lives Matter erupted, emotionally, I realized I was going backwards, not forwards. Back home in Africa, I do feel very cared for, Um, and and that's that's a good springboard. It's a good starting place to try to take on this kind of project. It's quite a strange thing to come, I mean, I've done this once before, to come home as an adult to the place that I grew up in. And I think, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I wasn't quite ready for it, and I was also doing a different kind of job. But this time around, it feels like the right time, and there's an enormous energy in Accra at the moment. I mean, you know, David Adjaye's office has opened up here. That's really shifted the landscape, I think, for young architects. And that there's a lot of energy um, and a lot of a lot of ambition and hunger. And that's an amazing place to to work from and and work with.
0: Just one more thing, and not to dwell on this too much. Obviously, we're talking in the context uh, just days after uh, the George Floyd conviction, uh, Derek Chauvin, um, the police officer convicted of uh, George Floyd's murder, a landmark development in the US that some people are saying don't read too much into it because it's, you know, there are still deep, deep seated problems. I read in a Guardian interview that you did and this really struck me and I live in South Africa now. You said that you know you weren't prepared for how race manifested itself in the US having just come from Johannesburg. The two have got very different histories, they've got very different racial dynamics, very different manifestations of race and racism. How would you explain that to someone who doesn't know these places?
2: So in hindsight, and and I have to say that this was in hindsight because it wasn't always clear to me whilst I was living in South Africa. In hindsight, race is not the elephant in the room in South Africa. It is the elephant. So it's present, it's foregrounded all the time and that can make it a challenging environment to be in particularly if you come from a context in which race is not understood in the same way. So I found myself in South Africa doing almost double or triple the work um, that I would do elsewhere because I had to translate my own experience into the context that I was in and read the codes in in different ways. In the United States, race is the elephant that's not seen, but it threatens Mm -hmm. to overshadow everything. So you can't preface it. So I found myself... In situations where I knew what was going on, I knew what was being said, I knew what was being intimated kind of underneath everybody 's breath, but we couldn 't name it, so you spent an awful lot of time putting in the infrastructure not to recognize it, and yeah. that ignorance always threatened to undo the dynamics of any conversation. I found that absolutely exhausting. Uh, one of the things I said once in a not exactly an interview but somehow publicly, which you know a lot of people took enormous offense at was. You know, in the U.S., you cannot square the myth of meritocracy with the reality of oppression. Like, those two narratives are incompatible. Mm -hmm. And the people who bear the burden of that incompatibility are black and brown people. But that's how it is. And for me, that burden, given that it's not my place, was overwhelming. it, It is not my battle that. So, yeah. I think in South Africa, there was much more of a... a a willingness, a bravery, a a kind of painful honesty. Uh, As difficult as it is, everyone knows that you can't dodge it. It's really interesting. And obviously, you know, these are
0: two white women, two middle-aged white women, Tara and me, talking to you about issues of race, which actually, you know, in certain circumstances... feel much, much more uncomfortable to have that conversation. But talking to you in South Africa, where, um, you know, Tara spends, you know, half her working life in South Africa as well. There is an honesty there. It's very raw. Um, It's, it is painful. And as you say, it can be incredibly wearing. uh, But nevertheless, it's there and it's being, it's being dealt with. It might be being dealt with in a very slow way, but it is, it is, it is present. Therefore, can I ask you this, this other question then? Um, you've published an important book on race and architecture. And again, that's something that wouldn't automatically occur to many people. Unconscious bias, perhaps. Um, there's been a lot about architecture and politics, you know, steeped in history. But what are the distinguishing features when you're talking about race and architecture and how it informs how buildings are designed?
2: For me, it's an important distinction that, you know, as a student of architecture... I understood race culturally, I didn't understand it in terms of stigma or um, oppression. Race was always an incredibly rich, creative category for exploration. And that exploration could be anything from history, to language, to narrative, to ritual, to colour. For me, it was a very fertile territory. And I used to have to say this all the time as a student, that I'm interested in race as a category of exploration. I'm not interested in racism. And that I never saw my own identity as a problem. I still don't. My identity is, is in some senses, the answer to, to who I am. And in teaching in South Africa, what was most, I think, empowering for me as an educator was putting in place the kind of curriculum that would allow students, black students of architecture, to see their own histories, experiences, narratives, ways of seeing the world as material to be developed. And the moment at which that material translated itself into form, into building material, into spatial arrangements, it became available for all students of architecture, regardless, Mm -hmm. white, Indian colored, female, whatever. And that moment at which they recognized that what they had to offer was of equal value was the moment at which I said, OK, the school has done its job. And it's partly why I want to take myself out of the equations of the Global North schools, which have their own dynamic around race and equity and diversity and inclusion. And it feels as if, you know, every time you name it, it gets another name. And then, you know, the the focus has gone somewhere else. (laughs) So you're forever playing catch up. But to come back to, to Ghana, where, you know, Race is not understood in the same way. Culture is. We we talk about culture. We know what culture is. We know what tradition is. Yeah. But everybody here is black. It sounds, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to talk about blackness in that yeah. way. And, mm-hmm. and that, for me, is a really empowering place because you stop thinking about your identity as something lacking, something less than.
1: And that then brings us on to your institute and its aims. And And when we've talked about it earlier or in the past, you've, you know, this is something about the, uh, you know, emergence of Africa, the uh, very hopeful post-COVID story. Again, you talk about the energy, uh, the energy that you feel having returned home. Tell us more about the Institute and what it aims to do and what and how that matches up to what's happening in, uh, in Accra and in in africa's cities
2: like i said before you know it's the world's youngest um continent i think our average age is just under 20 so there's an enormous need i think um to provide a future in which the the majority of this continent can see themselves in some way whether that's professionally intellectually creatively socially culturally you know in all in all ways but there's also something um I've talked about this before, this idea that Africa is a kind of laboratory of the future. And I mean, laboratory in the most generous way possible. And the idea that this institute, and I purposefully called it an institute and not a school, because I wanted to test the definition of what a school or a place of learning means in the 21st and 22nd century. And, you know, architecture as a discipline is very much, I mean, historically, it was always a gentleman's club. And Mm. both it's psyche, you know the, its character, the way it operates, the way it compensates, the way it, I would say also exploits is very much of a class and a generation who, who have access and, and wealth in particular ways. and that's no longer the case. I mean you know schools of architecture around the world are all screaming, about access, but actually, fundamentally, the discipline hasn't or the training hasn't changed very much. So, you know, everybody's keen to bring, in, you know, black and brown and BIPOC and BAME and, you know, all of these terms into the institute, but not really to, to examine why this, this institute, and I'm not just talking about, you know, the Institute of Architecture, I'm talking about the Institute of Education, why have these historically excluded others? So, I think I've always seen these questions as a real gift to the discipline. You know, I, I've said it before, decolonization is a gift. It's not about only replacing scholarship. It's about adding to it.
1: And, Leslie, well, as if that's not enough, you are also a prolific author. I mean, 11 books... Under your belt,
0: and these are not architecture books; these are novels, right? I
2: mean, my agent will probably slaughter me for saying this, but they are sex and shopping novels. Although um, (laughs) underneath, there's there's always an African location. You know, there are always black characters. It's there are always complex characters, and there's always something about a place in Africa that maybe readers haven't you know heard of or seen or understood. So, you know, for me, the impetus in telling these stories was the same (laughs) as as what I'm trying to say in architecture: that these inner lives that somehow aren't out there are are equal. They're as complex and convoluted and contrary as, as everyone's. So I think that, you know, fiction writing was just another genre to say the same thing. I did it full time for about 12 years and it was hugely enjoyable. And I'm still writing. I have another novel coming out in July, although it's not my main occupation anymore, but it's it's an amazing release actually from from sometimes the complexity of architectural language which can be very convoluted and introverted and this is very direct yeah
0: and i'm wondering if you actually write the novels in your beautiful kitchen which we can see at the end of this fantastic zoom link which would inspire me to write anything um we all know that we are talking to an architect uh, because i just need to describe for our listeners this wonderful streamlined beauty with a dining table sat up no I, set that just that see.
2: no I mean i actually write in edinburgh um i found accra very difficult to write you know if people don't find you on the telephone they'll just come to your house and we're yeah, not a terribly yeah. self-reflective you know um, we're, we're much more sociable and you know to write you really do have to retreat from the world so i, I wound up going to edinburgh every year which is the most amazing place to retreat to
0: so, yeah. yeah. Well, Tara gets that in France every time we do the podcast. Do, she gets a visitation. Someone so. <laughs>
2: appearing at the back window offering
1: me eggs because the only thing that the, the chickens produce is more
0: eggs. It's real. I think we've got to say thank you now. This has been amazing, Leslie. Really, really lovely to speak
2: to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been great. And great yes, to see you as well. lovely to see you. And uh, and don't be a stranger. I won't. So here's to that Chardonnay in the south of France or in Jogo. Absolutely.
0: You've been listening to The ARK Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at ARK produces regular country reports on Africa's major markets. You can subscribe to these at info at africariskconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.